Thank you to our choir and instrumentalists and to Carolyn and Robbie for leading us in worship today. Dan Baker's in New York this weekend getting to sing and conduct in Carnegie Hall. So we're very grateful he's with the Singing Men of Texas and a great opportunity for, for Dan to, to have that chance. Turn your Bibles this morning to two passages, Exodus chapter 3. We'll be looking at some passages in Exodus chapter 3. And in chapter 4, as well as we're going to begin in Acts chapter 7. It sounds like a strange passage to match with Exodus, but I think you'll see in a moment how perfect the fit is. Exodus chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7, what if? It's a storyline from a childhood classic which has all the elements of a, a good attention getter, fire and snakes and the voice of God and excuses, excuses, and even more excuses. I guess I've read this story like you have a couple of dozen times. As a child, I would envision that burning bush that would just keep burning but would never be consumed. But this time... I saw something that had escaped me before. And I don't feel too guilty because it's located all the way in Acts chapter 7. And so in reading Exodus, I had not put the two together. But this morning, don't focus on the burning bush. Forget about the staff that turns into a snake. Don't look at the hand leprous white. Today, I want us to look at a barefoot shepherd, someone like you and someone like me, who was terrified of failure. Look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 20. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he'd been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own. And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brothers, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and, and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Now, I want you to look carefully at verse 25. And he supposed, might say he dreamed, that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Now, the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed Moses away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? You don't mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian. And he became the father of two sons. This is Stephen's defense, his speech. What we learn here is that Moses, 
had dreamed. Moses had supposed 40 years before God called him at the burning bush, he already had in his heart that God had placed him in Pharaoh's household to let God's people go. It wasn't just God's idea. It had been Moses' idea as well. But despite the fact that Moses had dreamed of leading God's people from the burden of bondage, Moses became afraid that he would fail. He had long since pushed this dream four decades old out of his mind, and he became cozy and comfortable, a satisfied shepherd ready to avoid all challenges. Moses, 40 years earlier, had supposed that God would use him to lead God's people to freedom. But Moses put those dreams in a box. Like Moses, there are people here this morning, people watching by way of television, you put those dreams in a little box and you say, yes, I've got dreams. Of course I've got dreams. Look in my dream box. Then you put the box of dreams away, and and once in a while, you you take out that box and you open the lid. Yep, they're still there. Yep, I still got some dreams. Some of these are great dreams, but they never get out of the dream box. It takes an uncommon amount of, of guts and courage to put your dreams on the line and to hold them up and say, how good am I? How bad am I? That's where courage comes in. As human beings, we all share a common fear. It's greater than a fear of heights, greater than a fear of spiders, greater than the fear of water, greater than the fear of death. It is the most paralyzing and potent poison to humanity. We all have a fear of failure. Well, I want us to look at four questions Moses asked. First of all, in chapter 3 and verse 10, turn back to Exodus now. Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 10 and 11. Therefore, come now, and I, I will send you to Pharaoh, God speaking to Moses, so you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And that I should bring out the sons of Israel from Egypt. The first of the four questions Moses asked is, who am I to do something like this? First, first thing we discover is Moses is unsure about himself. Who am I? I'm reluctant. He had dreamt the dream 40 years earlier. This was his dream coming true. God was calling him to set God's people free. But when the opportunity comes, when the bush is burning, when God is talking, Moses retreats. Who am I to do something like this? God is saying, go for it. And Moses is saying, who am I? Moses has a fear of failure. He's 80 years old now. He's comfortable watching his father-in-law's flock. He decided just to play it safe, to repack that dream, that thing that he had supposed, and to put it back in the dream box and not get it out again. What are you afraid to try? 
Some of you remember back in 1984 that Coca-Cola was on a downhill slide. Pepsi was gaining market share. And so a gentleman by the name of Sergio Zyman was assigned the task of reestablishing Coke's dominance in the market share of soft drinks. And, well, Sergio Zyman had what he thought was a great idea. Let's just change the formula and we'll, we'll call it New Coke. Do you remember that? The world went wild. There, there was one man who, who cashed in all of his life savings to campaign to bring back his Coke. He could not live without it. Well, it was the most disastrous product since Edsel. In 79 days, 79 days, the old Coke formula by popular demand was back on the shelves called, you remember, Classic Coke. What you don't know is this, that Sergio Zyman who had, of course, had career failure. He had to leave Coke. He was fired, retired, pushed aside, humiliated, image-wrecking failure. What you don't know, seven years later, Zyman was hired back at Coca-Cola with a bigger title and a bigger job because he persevered, he learned from his failure, he learned, and he returned. What are you afraid to fail at. Sometimes our, our dreams have to start small, maybe even at failure level, level. FedEx, you've heard of the company, have you? FedEx, on the first day of business, shipped six packages worldwide. Six packages, FedEx. It wasn't that long ago, really, 1973. Six packages, and yesterday they shipped 14 million packages. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team because he wasn't good enough to play. Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court, had a questionable start graduating from law school. The only job she could find as a lawyer, as a woman, was they offered her a job as a legal secretary. She eventually got a seat on the Supreme Court. Best-selling author John Grisham had his novel, A Time to Kill, turned down by 28 publishers. 28 publishers, how foolish do they feel, said, no, Grisham, you can't write. It's not good enough. Moses was afraid. He felt incapable of the task. Lord, he says in chapter 5 of Exodus 22, I told you it wouldn't go well. I told you I would fail. I don't know why you called me to do this. Whenever we try to live out a dream, a supposed thing in our mind, we are risking. All of life is a risk. To laugh is to risk fearing to be a fool. To weep is to risk appearing sentimental. To reach out to another is to risk getting involved. To expose your feelings is to risk appearing sentimental. To place your ideas, your dreams before a crowd is to risk losing your ideas and dreams. To love is to risk not being loved in return. To live is to risk dying. To hope is to risk failure. But risk must be taken. The greatest hazard in all of life is to risk nothing. And if you risk nothing, you do nothing. You dull your spirit. Oh, you may avoid suffering and sorrow, but you cannot 
learn and feel and change and grow and love and live. You're chained by your attitude. You become a, a slave to nothing. You have forfeited your freedom. For only in risking do we find that we're free. A French novelist once said, One cannot discover new lands without consenting to lose sight of the old shore for a very long time. One cannot discover new lands without consenting to losing sight of the shore for a very long time. Moses realized that he can both keep one foot in the Midian desert and also go back to Egypt. So he decided, no, God, the burning bush, was, that was really something, but, but who am I? There's a second question he asked in verse 13 and 14. Look at chapter 3. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what's his name? What am I going to say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The second question Moses asked is, not only who am I, but God who are you? Who are you to be able to do this thing? Moses was not sure about himself. And, and secondly, Moses was unsure of God. Moses declares that he's a nobody. And then God says, but I'm a, I'm a somebody, God says about himself. Notice what he says in verse 12 of chapter 3. God says, to Moses, I will be with you. I will be with you. When Moses says, who am I, and has no self-esteem, God doesn't try to build up Moses' self-esteem. Rather, God replies, you are a nobody, Moses, but I'm a somebody, and I will be with you. I will send you, and I will go with you. Reminds me of the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you and have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I am your Savior. Moses, get up and go. I will be with you, and I'm a somebody. Here's a third question Moses asked. One Tom read for us just a moment ago in chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, what if? You ever play the what if game with God? But what if, God? What if they don't believe me? What if they do not believe that you have sent me? Bottom line, excuse after excuse, Moses is comfortable being a shepherd, the Midian desert, and, and Moses is afraid. 
God is asking him to go hand-to-hand and toe-to-toe with Pharaoh of Egypt. The odds don't look good. Pharaoh thinks that Pharaoh is a god, and Moses doesn't even know who his god is. Moses against Pharaoh. That's kind of like Billy Bloomfield against Bubba Walker. Randall O'Brien tells the story. You laugh, but you never saw Bubba Walker. Or if you did see him, you never saw him pitch a baseball. We did plenty of times, says Randall O'Brien. He was good. Bubba was a large human being. Kind of like Goliath's big brother. Even when he was little, even when he was a kid, he was big. He would go on to star at six foot four, a dominant athlete in Macomb, Mississippi High. Then off to state school on a full scholarship. Bubba reached manhood somewhere around age 12, just prior to his last year in Little League Baseball. We've all seen that guy. Dragon size, maybe bigger, age 12. Which brings us back to Billy Bloomfield. We all dreaded batting against Bubba Walker, Goliath. No exception. We tried to hide it. I hate to say, but we were scared to death of Bubba Walker. The man threw so hard that the catcher had to put a sponge in his mitt so as to not hurt his hand. Usually when Bubba was pitching, we did three things. When you had to bat against Bubba, first of all, you cried quietly. Second of all, you prayed really hard. Number three, you, just, you would just swing at the first three pitches and get it over with. And then you go back to the dugout and beg, please, Lord, let the coach put somebody else in my place. I'll be a preacher. I'll do anything. <laughs> and number five, you would consider, seriously consider quitting the game forever. Poor Billy. He had on his new white uniform. It was a hot summer day in 1958. Praying, there was Billy praying in the, the batter's box. He, he gets up there. Bubba went into a full wind-up, and Billy wet his pants right there in front of God and everybody. We all saw it. The girls saw it. The guys saw it. The parents saw it. The ump saw it. Bubba saw it. Everybody saw it. It was a large, dark, wet circle, and it just got bigger and bigger on those brand-new white baseball pants. Poor Billy Bloomfield. I mean, what can you say during a time like that? Excuse me? I mean, how do you respond? Woe to me. Life's like that. Billy could be any of us. Secretly, we're scared of Bubba, aren't we? What's Bubba in your life? The next grade in school, leaving home, getting married, responsibility of providing for a family, a new job, social interaction, finding the meaning of life, aging, a medical test, dying. Well, Bubba throws really hard, doesn't he? We try to hide our secret fears. Well, Billy couldn't. But Billy is my hero, writes Randall O'Brien. Why? Because everybody in Macomb, Mississippi, heard about the day that Billy Bloomfield wet his britches. And yet Billy hung in there, never quit, face a fiddler every day, going through life's belt line, 
courage. That's what I call it. And that's what life takes in character. Heroes, that's who you are. All the folks that stand out there in the batter's box every day against Bubba. With courage and character, you stand in there. When life scares you to death and, and life tries to humiliate you, laughs at you publicly, still you stand. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity and cowardice, but rather a spirit of love and self-discipline. Now, Billy Bloomfield, who wet his britches, never made it to the major leagues. That's not the end of the story, and, and you might not either. But if they ever name an all-time Macomb, Mississippi baseball team based on courage and character, I think we've got a nominee. Because eight batters later, with sold suit, guess who got up there in front of God and everybody and swung again against Bubba Walker? Yes, Moses, you were all Billy Bloomfields. The world is full of Pharaohs and Bubba Walkers who look really big. But we cannot and should not miss our turn at bad. Moses, afraid of failure, plain and simple. Who am I, God? And, and who are you, God? And what if, God? What if? It's one of those incredibly beautiful afternoons when you're just happy to be alive. You want to go outside and notice how wonderful creation is. The counselor watches a young governor scholar sitting in the chair in school in the counselor's office, staring out the window glumly. My life is over, says the boy. What's the sense of trying to do anything now, he replies. Straight A student, high SAT score, 145 IQ, multiple scholarship offers, national awards, and yet Yale, his dream, his father's dream for him, has just rejected him from admittance, and he says, I'm a failure. Or the girl who was in the high school counselor's office just weeks earlier crying because a friend had committed suicide over being bullied. Failure. But stories like that flood our minds too, don't they? Stories when we recall our own failure and our own inability to dream our dreams and putting our dreams back in the box rather than getting them out and listening to the call of God to go for it. When we respond to God, what if? young newspaper writer was told by his editor that he had no creative ideas, that he couldn't write, and he just needed to quit and find something else to do. You've heard of that young writer who was trying his hand at his first job writing for the newspaper. His name was Walt Disney. He went on to win 45 Academy Awards for his creative writing. Or what about Joan Sutherland? Don't, don't be, bet you don't know that name. Well, some of you will, but many of you won't. In college, her favorite voice teacher told her, I don't know how to tell you this, but the reality is your voice is not of professional quality. You need to go find something else to do, Joan. Joan reached the peak of being the most sought-after and highly paid operatic singer in the world before her career was over. 
And then there's an astounding story of a man by the name of W. Mitchell in a bizarre motorcycle accident. He was only 28 years of age. His face was permanently disfigured and burned. He actually lost some fingers as they melted together from the accident. And, well, he, he could have called it quits. And then four years later, he was in an airplane crash and was paralyzed from the waist down. He could have said, that's it. I'm burned. I'm paralyzed. Yet he went on to become a husband a self-made millionaire, a recognized environmentalist, a mayor, and a congressional candidate who, who ran on the, the slogan, I'm not just another pretty face, vote for me. I guess I've become fascinated with failure this week. Failure is an inescapable part of living. It's a natural phenomenon, so why do we dread it and fear it so? I think of my own sister, Jay Batson. Her first grade teacher told my mother she'll always be a C student. Don't expect of her what you're getting out of your boys. You just need to think differently with this child. Well, that was enough to motivate Jay, and she graduated from the University of South Carolina with honors and currently is a vice president the largest global tire manufacturer in the world, a vice president. The company starts with mm and ends with shun. I bet you can figure out which one <laughs> my sister's a vice president at. Well, there's a fourth thing. Moses says, why don't you use somebody else, God? Exodus 4, 13. Moses says, but, but Lord, now send a message by whomever you want. Put it in a question form. Why don't you use somebody else, Lord? Maybe that's your story or my story. We come to God and we say, God, whatever you've called me to do to teach a Bible study class, maybe there's someone who knows more about Scripture than I do. Maybe there's someone who's more eloquent. Maybe I'll bore them to death. Somebody else, Lord. What, Lord, you want, you want me to visit the hospitals? Well, I might not know what to say in the midst of tragedy. Somebody else, Lord. You want me to go on that mission trip? Well, I've never been out of the country, Lord. I feel a longing to go. It's in my dream box to go this summer. But you put it up for another year. And you say, who am I? And who are you, God? What if? And I guess I'll let someone else go. What's your dream? What has God called you to do? And what excuses are you giving back to God? Let us pray. God, why do you ask us to leave the comfortable? About the time we're feeling good about watching our father-in-law's flock. After we've done that for a long time. Sometimes you call us to do new things.
to dream new dreams or to take old dreams out of the box. And God, when you call, when that bush is burning and the voice is thundering, we have to be quick to slip off our shoes because we dare not soul holy ground. May we be willing to press on. May we be willing to have confidence not in who we are, but in who you are, O oh God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.